0: You're listening to Wonder Cupboard. What is science? Where does it come from? Is it a
1: cupboard? Hello, you're listening to Wonder Cupboard. My name is Ian.
0: And my name is Eleanor.
1: And uh, tell everyone listening, Eleanor, what are we going to be talking about today?
0: Well, I will, Ian. <laughs> but first, I'd like to start with a disclaimer. okay which is that we are not going to be talking about the Matrix. R- okay.
1: All yep. oh, right. Okay. It's just I had like... So the title of this episode is Are We Living in a Simulation? Yeah. I had like three hours of Matrix chat planned out.
0: Um, What what did you have well, in mind?
1: Like leather coats. A whole, there was a whole bit on leather coats. Uh-huh. What do they mean? Yeah. You know? Yeah. They look cool, but is there something more? Uh, Green code. Yeah. You know, why is it green? What does that mean? Yeah. Um, Sunglasses, just to, you know, prevent eye strain? Or is there a deeper meaning?
0: Maybe. I have have a theory on this. Maybe sunglasses and leather jackets just means that in the simulation, it's always spring.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, quite possibly.
0: Because it's that kind of clothing that doesn't really work in any real season, is it?
1: mm that's that's very true yeah Carry on? uh I, I, you know i well anyway fine it's okay I, yeah. I just i put in quite a lot of prep and i'm a little disappointed but it's okay we we can move on
0: i mean we, we can also get out of the way all the you know natural objections to the matrix like why didn't they use cows instead of humans so they wouldn't have to simulate a world for them
1: because it would have been bad for the plot.
0: Yeah, that's an that's not an <laughs> in universe explanation either. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah, know, we, we can get all that out of the way. Yeah. Um, or we can just ignore it. I'll, I'll just say,
1: let's just yes, ignore, it. ignore
0: it. Yeah. So, yeah, we are talking about living in a computer simulation, but I don't think the matrix is the best way to describe what we are about to talk about. Okay. And it will become clear why that is. So. Let's set the stage. Living in a computer simulation, broadly speaking, means that there's a mega computer somewhere that is generating our reality, including ourselves, which is not the case in the Matrix, thanks to some very advanced programming.
1: Cool. So stage set, that's what we're talking about?
0: That's what we're talking about.
1: So, Eleanor, are we living in a computer simulation? No. Well, thanks so much for listening. Uh, <laughs> please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, um, tell your friends, uh, see you next episode. <laughs> uh, but but how? Okay, but seriously, how do you know that we're not living in a simulation?
0: Uh, well, I mean, that's that's um, that's something a bit more complex that we should probably talk about in the next. 40 minutes, which seem to be just about the right length for this kind of problem.
1: Yeah, okay. So that's that quite seems handy. Okay. That seems good.
0: Okay, so let's let's talk about the details first, right? So I'm going to start from the most influential modern treatment of the simulation hypothesis, which was developed by Nick Bostrom, a Swedish philosopher who is active in Oxford. I'm going to sum up the argument from his 2003 paper called Are We Living in a Computer Simulation? Uh, There will be details in the references, so if you want to look it up. But anyway, the argument goes like this. Let's say that as a species, we humans progress to a point when we have huge amounts of computing power, more than we know what to do with. At that point, future humans might want to run a simulation of their ancestors let us also assume that the simulated people are conscious. So we're not just talking about an advanced CGI movie, we're talking about simulating the minds themselves so that the people created in this way will be both fully simulated and fully conscious. Given these two premises, and the fact that it would be easy enough for future people to create simulations, then we have a fairly high probability that we ourselves are simulated. If this is true, we can go even wilder. Imagine the simulated ancestors, after a few centuries of simulated technological progress, would also be able to run simulations of other beings. That means that we'd have two simulations nested inside the other. We have the outer non-simulated world, where the non-simulated programmers work. Then we They're have the worst kind. <laughs>
1: this. At least the simulated ones have got an excuse, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we have these angels up there, and then we have the first simulation, and within it another simulation. This could go this could go on virtually forever. Actually within the same world, simulated or not, more than one simulation could be run, and probably would be run because people like to tinker with computers. Maybe they want to see what would have happened in history if we changed a variable, for instance, which to me seems like the only real reason one would run a simulation of their ancestors anyway
1: yeah like yeah you'd want if you were trying to find out things about humans then i guess you'd want to change variables wouldn't you
0: yeah like that's what people do with models right yeah. in general that's what you do you have a model of something so you can change something and see what happens mm. And that would also be an interesting way to think about the multiverse, for instance, because at this point, if this were true, you could go, well, the multiverse is the set of different worlds that have been simulated by changing a variable. And Mm. that variable could be as small as what I had for breakfast and as big as, I don't know, were the dinosaurs ever extinct, you know?
1: Everyone wears a hat. (laughs) Everyone.
0: That sounds like a great world. We have just
1: like an instinctual desire to be wearing a hat. Mm, I like that. All kinds.
0: (laughs) All kinds. If you did this, there would be countless simulations. The possibility that a large number of simulations could be run also increases the mathematical probability that we are in one, right? Because if you think large numbers of simulations are possible and simulations within simulations, which could mean an exponential growth, of simulations, and only one world is not simulated, then of course it is more likely for any given person to be inside a simulation than not. If these premises are accepted, Bostrom assigns a high probability to the hypothesis that we do indeed live in a simulation. Do you, Ian, find this convincing?
1: I guess I do, given those premises, which don't seem like they're two out there mm. like the the what are the two premises that uh we have huge amounts of com- we have more computing power than we know what to do with yeah and that future humans might want to run a simulation particularly the second one yeah sounds pretty pretty logical so i guess i do find that kind of kind of convincing
0: yeah i think with the with the wanting to do it i think i struggle with that a little bit okay because there's a lot of talk of reducing suffering and there's a lot of suffering in the world and there are people who argue that simulating people for instance would create more suffering because you're creating more beings that could experience uh pain well suffering because pain to some people is pleasant <laughs> and bless them for it they're very lucky if you ask me um <laughs> but let's let's not get into pdsm <laughs> chat <laughs> uh, at this time in the morning um, so some people might think that it would be unethical, and you'd think you know maybe in decades of or centuries of or, of progress, maybe it will be nicer to simulated beings, and we won't want that to happen to them, mm. especially because if you simulate history, history is grim, yeah i like, it does yeah people being tortured and killed in all sorts of ways all the time, and if people- these people are conscious, then it's like. You really want to inflict that?
1: On the other hand, you might get into a situation where people, and I think wrongly, would think that it's the lesser of two evils to mm. inflict this pain for you know the advancement of society on simulated people rather than real people.
0: Well, but if you and think... then
1: someone's going to argue, is there any difference? Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> That's the thing. At that point, it's like if you accept the premise that you can simulate consciousness fully, then what, why are they any less important, right?
1: Mm.
0: So I, I think that's kind of an interesting thing to think about. So the thing about consciousness is that we don't know whether it could be simulated, essentially. So Bostrom assumes this idea called substrate independence, Uh, which means that consciousness could be implemented on any material, uh, as long as it simulates our brain. So in other words, if a system is complex enough to simulate a brain at the level of synapses, then the brain will be conscious. The roots of this idea, however, are in a materialistic view of the mind as something that emerges naturally from the complexity of the brain. This means that robots could be conscious as well, if you want to take a fashionable example, and there's, you know, there's lots of talk of whether we should consider um, robots worthy of ethical attention,
1: for mm. instance. So you're saying that, you know, that yeah, the theory is that a system becomes so complicated that somehow conscious emerges from that. Yeah, yeah,
0: and there are some people who think that that could happen to the internet, for instance. It's such mm. a complex mingling of minds. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know how to explain, but people think it might become a hive mind, you know, and it might become conscious. So, yeah, there's all sorts. Also, not to repeat myself, but <laughs> um, <laughs> substrate independence is exactly what makes Bostrom's argument different from the matrix. Because in the matrix, minds are not simulated. Minds are real. The actual Mm -hmm. brains of humans in which um, robots have stuck some electrodes and that makes them feel and experience things as if they were in the situation, right? Incidentally, we are spoiling the Matrix, but (laughs) I feel like there is a 20-year embargo on Mm. a movie after which you're on your own.
1: Yeah, I mean, everyone knows that at the end, Keanu Reeves is a ghost. Yeah. So
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: you know, it's just popular culture at this point. <laughs>
0: um yeah, okay. So if you haven't seen The Matrix, A, what are you doing? B, sorry.
1: Well, I'd pause this and watch it. It's a great film. It's still a great film.
0: It's still a great film, but we spoiled it. But film. we're not
1: talking about it. That's, That's the point. true. No, we're not. We're absolutely not talking about The Matrix. We're not talking about The Matrix.
0: Nope. So The Matrix is similar to some so the the Sorry, the idea, the central idea in The Matrix is similar to some philosophical arguments that deal with simulations, right? That assume the existence of a brain, though. Or something like it. So the first and most well-known is Descartes' argument, who was wondering whether an evil demon was creating a dream for him and was making him think that the world was real, but really it wasn't. Hilary Putnam's version is Uh, about a brain in a vat. Same scenario, but with evil scientists. So you are a brain in a vat.
1: Thanks. (laughs)
0: That's a good insult, isn't it? (laughs) Um, So you're wired to a computer on which scientists are running a simulation. Um, And they give you the illusion of living a full life, but you're not actually living a full life as such. Um, So the brain is real in these scenarios, right? Um, In Bostrom's. It isn't. In fact, I think Bostrom's scenario is more similar to um, HBO's Westworld. Um, I don't know if people have seen it, but it's um, about a sort of um, amusement park, essentially, that hmm. is uh, populated by robots, right? Again, if you haven't seen Westworld, A, watch it, B, d- don't listen to this. Um so th- these robots, you know, artificial beings have been programmed and then slowly acquire consciousness due to the complexity of the engine. So that's exactly what Bostrom is getting at, right? That's that's substrate independence mm. in action.
1: And the reason we're talking about Bostrom's argument and not Putnam's is just because it's a much more recent contemporary yeah. argument that takes account of mm. more things.
0: O- also... Putnam does it in a fairly um, small-scale way. He just basically says, is there any way you can tell that you're not a brain in a vat? Well, I think Bostrom does it in a way that is less about it being a thought experiment and more about it being a real possibility in the world. Um, and obviously it becomes also a thought experiment, but I think the arguments functions slightly differently.
1: Mm. It's a little bit more applied.
0: Yes. Um, And we'll see just how applied it is because this does not remain theoretical. Okay. (laughs) People. (laughs) It escalates pretty quickly. Um, So while we're on the subject of minds and being in a simulation as a mind, there's another interesting aspect to Bostrom's story. Since running simulations would probably be quite costly, there is a chance that programmers might try to cut corners here and there. Sounds familiar?
1: Yes, yes, yes. definitely. Having done programming myself, um, yeah. It's, it's, and having played a lot of computer games uh, <laughs> as well, uh, you know, you, you occasionally see... It's, it's the classic thing of you're playing, say, a football game, something like that, or a soccer game for our, for our US cousins, and, you know, your players are beautifully modelled, kind of the cloth on their shirts reacts perfectly. And then you take your eye off what the players are doing, as I often do, because to be honest, I can't stand football. I don't play football games. And I'm usually <laughs> watching people playing football games while I'm bored. Take your eye off the players and you look at the crowd in the, uh, in the stadium and they're like cardboard cutouts of people going, yay, 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 like sort of <laughs> animatronic. Uh, figures in an old museum yeah and, and that's a classic example of cutting corners because if you modeled every single person in that stadium with the same complexity as the players then the whole thing would grind to a halt you wouldn't have the competing power to do it
0: and that's exactly the point of this it's like bostrom says maybe in simulations you'd have this kind of you know background crowds being something that he calls shadow people So people who act like humans, uh, but whose brains aren't simulated. So there is no subtlety or detail to, to them, like, you know, like in a video game. So these people wouldn't be conscious. They would only behave as if they were conscious. This scenario is also similar to another thought experiment that is used in philosophy of mind, in which you considered the possibility of something called phenomenological zombies, <laughs> which I think would make a great metal band name.
1: Definitely, yeah. It really sounds like a couple of philosophers had a, uh, a competition to see who could use the most syllables <laughs> in, in the title of their paper.
0: <laughs> also, like, some thought experiments are so creepy. Mm. At some point, so I'm on Twitter and... There's a lot of philosophers on Twitter for some reason, which is quite an interesting thing to begin with. But at some point, someone tweeted um, that all um, philosophical thought experiments are the beginning of a horror story. (laughs) And she challenged colleagues to find exceptions to it. No one could find an exception. They're all creepy as fuck. Um, Which is probably why I got into it. (laughs) I'm, I'm a big goth. So, phenomenological zombies. So, what does phenomenological mean? It just means what things appear to be.
1: Okay, so phenomenologically, I appear to be a bearded man. Yeah. And the the Hawaiian with ham and pineapple appears to be a pizza.
0: It is not. <laughs> the noumenon, which is the actual essence of that, is not pizza. <laughs> I refuse. But yes, um... This distinction in our Western tradition comes from Kant, Immanuel. Don't don't make jokes about Kant, who <laughs> distinguished between a world of appearances and the real essence of reality behind it. it eventually, became a whole strand of research dedicated to examining uh, human experience. Very interesting. We're not going to talk about it. Zombies <laughs> refers to zombies.
1: Okay. So we're talking about people who look and act like people but have no actual thoughts or brain. Pretty much,
0: yes. The problem with this is that it's not clear whether phenomenological zombies are even theoretically
1: possible. Oh, I've seen them. (laughs) Sainsbury's or, you know, another supermarket, usually just after work. Like Mm -hmm. you get around half past 5, 6 p.m., people have got off their commutes.
0: Yeah, is pr-
1: pretty sure.
0: <laughs> well, let, let's examine an alternative in which <laughs> maybe that's not the full explanation. Okay. Um, so in current average humans,
1: mm-hmm.
0: maybe not on rush hour, behavior is not separated from mental states. Of course, one could feel something and behave differently. Like I could be really angry and just smile my way through it. <laughs> But that behavior still corresponds to some kind of mental experience, right? I, I, am, I am telling myself to smile my way through it somehow. Mm-hmm. There's a substrate to that, right? And mental experience serves to mediate behavior. It allows us to react to the world. It's the engine of, of behavior somewhat, right? You know, like in Westworld. So how can you have someone react to the outside world without somehow processing what's going on in the outside world? There are various ways of describing that processing, uh, and some people would take issue with colony processing even, and I'm with them, but we can't get into it uh, right now. However, however you do this, it's nowhere near established whether phenomenological zombies are theoretically possible because of this issue of where does the behaviour come from then if they're not experiencing anything. Bostrom acknowledges this issue in the paper, But it doesn't make much of it. It doesn't really seem to think that this issue has a bearing on his line of argument. just makes it a bit more uh, creepy. (laughs) Um, I think it might do, though. For the sake of argument, let's say shadow people are possible. As a programmer, how do you decide who should be fully simulated and who shouldn't? Like, in your football game example it's quite clear where the center of the action is right Mm. it's in the football
1: yeah and even more importantly the the decision has been made because your your concentration is Mm. on a particular point the bit they've decided to cut corners on is the bit you're not concentrating on yeah you don't notice it because you're not looking at it
0: yeah there's definitely a foreground and a background Mm -hmm. right um So, in a way, they are deciding who the main characters are. Yeah. But how do you do that in a simulation of your ancestors? Um, Like, if you're modeling your own history, you're probably trying to work out how it works, right? We're talking about changing variables and, and so forth. So, how do you decide to begin with who's going to be the important people? I mean, of course, you could, you know, let's just simulate all the kings and queens and everyone else is just, you know, some guy but then that's a very biased view of history if you think that that's all that counts like how that's can... kind
1: of what we have already yeah. <laughs> in history books and you know people haven't written so much about the little guy
0: yeah and and that's actually we're actually missing out on a lot because how can you understand things like the french revolution without thinking about how people were living and thinking and and, and so forth um, how can you understand the history of science just to remain kind of closer to our turf if you're ignoring all the people tinkering around in the workshops, all the shopkeepers, all the flipping monks going around with their peas? So so yeah, so my point is when starting a simulation of history, you can't know in advance who's going to be more influential on the development on of that history itself. That's why you run the simulation to find that out. So it would seem very unwise of our...
1: Our erstwhile simulators. Thank you. <laughs> I couldn't
0: think of it because I was like, maybe they're not human, maybe they're robots. It's just it's very difficult to find words sometimes when you're talking about these things. Also, let's say that the majority... Let, let's say that you have picked your protagonists for whatever reason, because you're silly and you're focusing on Elizabeth the I... Elizabeth I is your main character. So if the simulation works anyway by just simulating Elizabeth I, why do you have to simulate her at all? Like if shadow people work just fine, you could just make everyone a shadow person, right? And at that point, if you have ethical concerns about suffering, those would also go away. Because at that point, those people wouldn't suffer anything, right? So it's quite an attractive solution if you think about Mm. it. Cheap and sweet. Um, except this line of thinking would undermine the whole of Bostrom's argument. Because at that point, if everyone is simulated, then in that scenario, then I know that scenario isn't true because I myself know I am not simulated. And everyone else in the world know that they are conscious, right? I mean. I know that I am conscious. Hence, I am not a shadow person. Hence, it can't be... I can't be part of a simulation of shadow people. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Cool.
1: Thank, um, thank you, Descartes.
0: Thank you, Descartes. Exactly. I'm not a shadow person. Like, Descartes goes really a bit too far with the cognitive if you ask me, but that one he nailed. Like, I know I am conscious. And that's something you can't take away from me. And, you know... You can say, oh, fine, you know you're, you're conscious, but what if you are the engine of history in the 21st century? To which I answer, I seriously fucking doubt it. <laughs> um, because my life is not very exciting and I am just some random Italian. <laughs> Wonder covered. So I was saying that this doesn't remain theoretical for long. That is because some influential people are actually interested in the simulation hypothesis. One of them is Neil deGrasse Tyson, our friend who knows nothing about the history of what we thought the Earth was shaped like. <laughs> um, for, for,
1: this, uh, for, more, for more information on this passive-aggressive comment by Eleanor, <laughs> please see our episode on flat Earth and the history of it, how it's not quite as simple as it sounds.
0: Exactly. For even more passive-aggressive comments, I am going to mention Elon Musk.
1: And for more information on uh, why Eleanor is making a passive-aggressive comment about Elon Musk, please see Elon Musk.
0: (laughs) So in an interview, Elon Musk, fellow of the Royal Society as of uh, last year, just so you know, stated there's, uh, this is a quote, exact quote, there's one in billions chance we are in base reality. How many billions that is, we don't know. How he thinks probability works, also a bit kind of murky at this point. But he's got loads of money. And he has financed research to find experimental evidence that we are indeed living in a simulation. There appear to be other people in Silicon Valley who are doing this. I couldn't find any specific information because people are probably quite understandably a bit coy about it. (laughs) Um, But I did find some studies that were published about um, the simulation theory. And, And they're all about whether or not this is possible in principle. So they're not trying to look for clues in our universe. They're more like, if we were to look for clues, what would we do? And, you know, How would that work? Um, So one group of scientists at the University of Washington have basically tried to start a simulation with tools available in 2012 to probe the limitations of creating a computer simulation. They've broken up the universe into tiny portions, that is theoretically. Portions just shy of the size of an atom. And based on the known laws of physics, they have tried to build a simulation of the universe from the ground up using a technique called lattice quantum chromodynamics, which I am just quoting because I don't know what it means. This operation should give us an idea of the limitations found in building a simulation that are reflected in the simulation itself somehow. So you look at the simulation you made and ask yourself, if I were an inhabitant of this simulation, how would I know? And then theoretically, we could look for simil- similar uh, telltale signs, um, also known as signatures of simulation, but scaled up to our reality. Then there's a group in Oxford who asked themselves, is it even theoretically possible to build a computer that could simulate the universe down to the quantum level? Which is a clever question. So far, we have only encountered people who assume that computing power can just grow exponentially without limits, but that's not really true. There are theoretically, there are theoretical limits to computation, right?
1: Yeah, that, and if I understand correctly, there are some abstract limits in terms of how much maths can achieve versus time, uh-huh. but uh, more pressingly, there are limits in terms of how much computing you can physically do, and these are theorems along the lines of how can you simulate every subatomic particle in the universe without having a whole second universe? If that's the base, if that's the the, small, the smallest particle, which I'm sure we, which we haven't found yet. But it, it, to do a perfect simulation, you have to use that particle in exactly the same places. Mm. And then you need a whole second universe, which doesn't exist because the universe is itself. Yeah. So... That's a kind of a more basic thing than the actual theorems, which deal with crazy things like storing data using a black hole. But that's the idea.
0: I want to know everything about storing data using a black hole. That sounds like just about the coolest thing I've heard <laughs> all year.
1: It's a, if you think you could somehow store data in it, then obviously that's going to be the densest because a black hole is so dense.
0: Oh my God, ultimate you can, compression. You
1: can pack the most data into it because it's so dense.
0: Oh, that's so cool. But
1: it's, you know... It's a little way off. Still cool. <laughs> Not sure I want a black hole in my laptop. <laughs> what if I drop it and get sucked in? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just...
0: would That would make for all sorts of interesting sitcom situations. Uh, <laughs> do you think? Where is Mark? Oh, he's in a black hole again.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> that Mark. Yeah.
1: Mm, which yeah. is also the name of the sitcom. That Mark. Mm.
0: Okay, BBC, if you're listening. <laughs> um, okay, so these people in Oxford were asking themselves if it is theoretically possible, right? They tried to simulate quantum many body effects. That is the consequences of having a lot of particles interacting with each other. Because you don't have to just simulate the particles, but you have to simulate them in a way that they interact as well. So that's more complexity. And just just adding one particle increases complexity exponentially, right? Because it increases the amount of, like, relations between particles and so possible relations. And at that point, like, the computing power needed is just too large. So, yeah, they don't think it can be done. But guess who came to the rescue on this?
1: Was it Rizwan Verk?
0: It was his one work, yeah, Do you know I'm, who that is?
1: No, I don't. I just I, it's written down here.
0: Stop reading ahead, Ian if <laughs> <laughs> I make my notes. Um, <laughs> so he is a computer scientist and a video game developer. uh uh-huh. So guess what he thinks reality is.
1: Does he think it's a video game?
0: He does think it's a video game. Hmm. um so his idea is an extension, or if you'll allow me, an expansion. I of see what Bostrom's you did there. argument, I made a video game joke. <laughs> I'm very proud of myself um and and you know you can kind of foresee where he gets to. He gets to this kind of optimization slash blurring the mountains in the background sort of hmm. um scenario he He does it by by outlining the stages of technological development between now and what he calls the simulation point when our technology will be advanced enough to simulate a world. Uh, at that point, he claims that humankind will amuse itself with a video game simulation of either its ancestors or I would say also pretty much anyone because we could be simulated by people who were never like us. Yeah, you know? mm. But anyway, simulations of someone in which some people are players and some are not. So some people will be hooked to something and living amongst non-players who are just simulating. So it would be like someone living amongst um, shadow people, essentially, Mm. in Bostrom's terms. Again, (coughs) Westworld. Mm
1: -hmm. In video game terms, it would be player characters and NPCs, non-player characters.
0: Thank you. (laughs) So he thinks about progress in terms of refinement of optimization techniques, right? So you defy those theoretical limits to computation, so in the case of quantum fluctuations, for instance, it wouldn't be necessary to model each particle and its interactions with other particles, which is what those um, researchers in Oxford were trying to do. You just give uh, probabilistic instructions to the computer and leave it be, which also would elegantly explain why quantum physics is probabilistic, for instance. Um by the way, Elon Musk subscribes to a similar view, and in an interview uh, where he was talking about this, he was like, he was going like, "Well, you know, 40 years ago we had Pong, and it was uh, it seemed very advanced, and it was just you know a dot and two lines. And now look, we've got uh, vid- other video games whose name <laughs> I definitely know, and are very uh, realistic."
1: Tell me the name of a video game.
0: The one with the hedgehog, Sonic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now make up a name of a video game, of a twenty nineteen video game.
0: Running around with geese.
1: Running around with geese. Yeah,
0: you're okay. just you're just you're not a geese, you're not a goose. Okay, but you have geese friends, and you run around, and sometimes you're going to like, and that's the video game. Cool. I would play that.
1: Yeah, it sounds good.
0: I just the thing I don't like about video games is that you're supposed to do stuff; otherwise, it ends. Mm. I wish I could just not do anything and yeah. just go around, and then it wouldn't end.
1: You really need to get into the uh, subgenre of games called walking simulators.
0: That sounds wonderful. You're gonna love them. Cool. Well, you know where to find me then. Mm. Um
1: in my house (laughs) because it's ours
0: (laughs) well but in front of the telly oh yeah pretending to be a goose (laughs) in any case all these people are reasoning and trying to find experimental evidence within the laws of our universe can you start to fear the catch there Oh, no. Oh, no. Because if we are indeed in a simulated universe, it is entirely possible that the universe where our simulators live would be regulated by entirely different laws, where computing power is subject to different theoretical limits. So allowing for this possibility essentially nullifies this line of inquiry. You can't really discount anything.
1: Right. Okay.
0: So well done, Oxford. I thought we nailed
1: it there for a minute.
0: Yeah. Everyone does. So all we can do is look for those signatures, right? Which, by the way, I refuse to call glitches, like in the matrix, because they're not glitches. They are signs of the normal functioning of the hypothetical system that sustains our universe, not errors becoming apparent. So a signature is an interesting physical constant, for instance, not a cat crossing the road twice, or deja vus, or the fact that you have found uh, love in an unlikely place, <laughs> So, for instance, I saw this panel with a lot of interesting people in it, amongst which a physicist called James Gates. and he was saying this panel that while solving equations during his daily practice, he found something resembling and I quote because I have no idea what this means error-correcting codes that are, according to him, found in internet browsers. I don't know whether this makes sense. I assume it does because he's a physicist. But Ian, I know nothing about, Do you know things about internet browsers. Does this mean anything to you?
1: Yeah, so error correcting codes are a thing. How they're related to internet browsers or web browsers, I really don't know. I'm not quite sure what he's getting at here. Uh,
0: (laughs) Also, I assume that a simulation wouldn't be run in an internet browser.
1: Uh, I mean, you can run simulation. You can run things in browsers, yes, because not- they can run code. Okay. So, yeah, you can do simulations of things. You can do physics simulations.
0: In an internet browser? Yes. That's cool. I didn't know that. Okay,
1: so... But an error correcting code is like you're sending a sequence of numbers Yeah. and you need to be able to... Say there was a break in transmission so that the middle part of that sequence of numbers got cut out. Yeah. An error correcting code is some extra digits that you add that will help you to work out what's missing if something's missing. Okay. Uh, so you send slightly more than you need to and then you use a, a, a mathematical algorithm to work out what's missing if something is missing. Okay. And also to work out if something is missing.
0: But that's not necessarily an internet browser No, thing. it's
1: just data transmission. It okay. works, It's the same in cables. So I don't quite know what he's talking about there. (laughs) Cool.
0: (laughs) Um, There's another physicist that I have a lot of sympathy for. Her name is Liz Randall, who uh, was also on this panel. And she has gone on the record about uh, the simulation argument multiple times. And basically all she does is rolling her eyes and wearing noting that the most interesting question in all this is, Why do we find this far-fetched, unproven, probably unfalsifiable hypothesis so endlessly fascinating? And I think that she's getting at the right question here. Because, to be honest, I don't think we live in a simulation. What interests me the most is why do people think about it this way? And what, what can come out of thinking about it, right? So... One way one could look at it is thinking who would benefit from the simulation theory being true, which could be, you know, a good um, motive to investigate it from a metaphysical standpoint. And that includes science because science is trying to come up with a metaphysics being in a simulation would solve so many problems. Firstly, it would mean that something called information realism is true. Information realism means that the universe is literally made of information. Knowing this would allow us to explain, for instance, why the universe appears to be governed by laws. It would also answer the converse question, how are we able to know these laws? What is that magic that allows a bunch of people scattered all over the globe to somehow peek? into the structure of the universe we're so used to assuming that's just what science does that we hardly think about this but it is bizarre if you think about it right what makes us so special that we have access to these laws philosophers have been asking themselves these questions for a long time and it's very difficult to answer without recurring to one of the following one way to solve it is you say that laws are a model that we use to conceptualize the universe but that they are not written anywhere as such, and that solves in one fell swoop the problem of why we know these laws. We made them. The alternative is admitting that they are written in the universe, which opens questions around intelligent design, because at that point you're like, who wrote them? Or how did they come about? Second sigh of relief. The certainty that the universe is simulated would disintegrate the fine-tuning problem. So I'll give you an outline of the fine-tuning problem. Those who raise this problem go, life is a delicate flower made possible only in highly specific conditions. Constants need to be just so. Temperature needs to be just so. And so forth. How is it possible that these Goldilocks conditions have come to be? People have been wringing their hands over whether it even makes sense to ask that question because we are clearly in a full observer bias. If those conditions hadn't been there, no one would ask that question. So something that's that's that that concludes the argument. Others go, yes, but we are here. So and then yet yeah, more people go full empirical and say, but we have no control in this experiment, right? So how do we know that the world is fine-tuned for life if we don't have a control group? So if we don't have a world where life hasn't evolved and we can't see the differences, right? Or, you know, maybe other kinds of life could emerge in different conditions, right? Another thing you might say is our concept of life is based on the fact that we are alive. We are made of carbon and breathe and grow and die. We call this life, think it is really rather special. And then we go, wait a minute, how come we are so special? Mm. Which is a tautological thing to do.
1: Yeah, we think we're special. We, we we, we, think we're special. And then we ask, why are we special? Well, we're special because we think we're special. We're, exactly. Yeah.
0: Then, of course, there's the whole religious side of things that complicates matters even further. So over this chaos, because the fine-tuning problem is a massive issue, you can have, you know, simulation guy, Rizwan, or one of them, just, you know, just raising their hand and just looking around and going, well, these conditions are perfect because they were put in place for us. I hate that guy. <laughs> Another really problem is the Fermi paradox. <laughs> Also known as the Fermi paradox. But Enrico Fermi was Italian, for fuck's sake. So, it's the Fermi paradox. That <laughs> is. We are but one speck in an unimaginably vast universe. How come we don't have any evidence for forms of alien life yet? Simulation guy, again going, <coughs> and it's like, well, because this world was made for you. Lovely. Lovely. Of course, simulated aliens could exist, but no one seems to raise the issue ever. No one cares. Also quite an interesting thing, if you ask me. So I'm not going to draw conclusions as such, especially because that's not what we're doing here. Um, But you can see how believing in a simulation would solve a lot of problems and would help. So some people say there's about God, for instance, right? That God... Is an entity that has been invented to solve problems, and this argument is called God of the Gaps. There's a gap in knowledge, and so you go, it's God, and that's settled.
1: Yeah. Why? Why has the sun gone dark? Uh, yeah. God. God. When we now know it's an eclipse. Yeah. That's that God of the Gaps argument.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so, in in this sense, it would be like a simulation of the gaps type argument. Incidentally. Comparisons with religion have been drawn, partly because of this, and because, you know, this is basically talking about a creator, a possible creator, and so some people might think that God is a programmer or something like that. But I'm not going to get into it, because two reasons. A, I know very little about theology, which is the study of religion and God. And B... Because I'm seeing a trend amongst rationalists that I find really frustrating and makes me really angry, which is to say, well, this thing is similar to something that is somewhat religious, so it's wrong. So they use religious belief in order to discredit theories, um, which A, it's really lazy. You know, you're like, oh, well, this sounds a bit like God exists, so it must be wrong. And B, I think it's really disrespectful. I am an atheist, but I know I'm fallible. So I respect the fact that other people might have different beliefs from, from me, right? And so I do not want to follow this line of thinking, essentially. Also, some, some of our best friends, best friends are, are Christians. Christians. <laughs> Hi, Matt. <laughs>
1: Hi,
0: Pete. <laughs> Hi, Laura. Um, and, you know, we get along great. We might disagree on some things, but disagreement is not enough to use a whole chunk of humankind as some kind of theoretical cautionary tale, right? And that was our by now regular feature, Eleanor arguing with an imaginary enemy. Also, Elena using an accent that that is not really clear where it's from, <laughs> just for effect. Okay, let's move on. So there's, there's this whole thing. And then, obviously, there's ethics. So what would be the ethical consequences of knowing that we live in a simulation? Would that change anything? Well, Elon Musk, our good friend, wants to escape the simulation, of course. Another author thinks that if the simulation has some kind of entertainment value, then that means that non-entertaining characters would be killed off. Like like the ultimate reality show, like a literal reality show. So in order to stay alive, we should live full and adventurous lives that would make us interesting for our simulating overlords. So I'm going to quote from his paper, which, by the way, I thought initially that he was being ironic about this. I don't think he is. <laughs> I think he's saying this very seriously. Okay, quote, if you might be living in a simulation, then all else equal, you should care less about others, live more for today, make your world look more likely to become rich, expect to and try more to participate in pivotal events, be more entertaining and praiseworthy and keep the famous people around you happier and more interested in you.
1: So what he's saying here is that possibly the people at the forefront of simulation theory are the Kardashians.
0: Yes. Yeah. They've got it. They've got it. What if our overlords are like a superior breed of humans that came from the Kardashians? (laughs) Like the Kardashians are their Adam and Eve.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. The Kardashians that we know are simulations of the forerunners of... Yeah. Yeah. Of the Kardash- super Kardashians which are simulating our universe.
0: That is the creepiest thing we've said today, it? It
1: explains it? a lot.
0: It does explain a mm, lot.
1: It's a real Kardashians of the gaps <laughs> argument.
0: <laughs> and, like, also, what are we doing here? Like, our lives are nowhere near similar to the Kardashians.
1: To be honest, by even saying this, we are putting our heads above the parapet.
0: Damn it. Do something entertaining.
1: Um, uh... Uh, no, it's it's no good. I'm gone. I'm sorry.
0: Okay, I'm dancing. <laughs> I'm really dancing, by the way. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, we're still here, so maybe that was enough. Maybe the bar is really low for entertainment. <laughs> also, going back to the video game hypothesis, Verk points out that we should work out whether we are players or NPCs. Yeah? Yeah. First. <laughs> Which... I thought it would be obvious because if I'm a player, I would remember starting the game, right? Unless you go really deep, in deep embedded in this reality and you'd wipe your own memory for a more authentic experience. Like that seems like extreme video mm. game playing. But I can imagine some people wanting to do that, to be honest. Mm. So so I don't know, like how do yeah. You should know whether you're a player or non-player.
1: Well, you know... In the Matrix, Cypher wants <laughs> ah! to go back into the Matrix with his memories wiped, so...
0: Damn it, that is so true. <laughs> Fuck. Ugh. Matrix came back to bite us in the arse.
1: But we're not talking about it. We're not talking about the We're not talking
0: about the Matrix. And you know what,
1: I think we, we've, we've pretty much got to the end of the episode here and, and we haven't talked about the Matrix at all, so we've done really well.
0: We've done really well. Yeah. One last thing mm-hmm. that I might say. So, if there are shadow people, right, Like, my main interest as myself, Eleanor, would be to go and see how good the simulation of a mind is. So, what I would do... So, do you know what the Turing test is?
1: Yes. So, I mean, one way the Turing test has been run is you're in a chat room and you are human, you are yourself, and you're in this chat room with another user. And you have to work out within a certain time limit, I think it is, whether the person you're talking to is a human or an artificial intelligence. Yeah. That's one way of implementing the Turing test. And if you're talking to an artificial intelligence and you think it's a human, that artificial intelligence is said to have passed the Turing test. Yeah. Obviously, it is not saying that that artificial intelligence is then equal to a human but it's based on this idea that if you can't tell the difference casually then maybe there is no difference
0: and we're going back to the whole phenomenological zombies thing right that's that's a sticking point um so yeah so what i would do is just run up to strangers and see if they pass the Turing test because if they're (laughs) shadow i want to know if they're shadow people Mm. i want to know everything about phenomenological zombies
1: there's an episode of Farscape, which is an excellent and ridiculous sci-fi series from Australia in the middle, mid-noughties, where the main character comes to realise that he's living in a simulation based off his own memories, because the simulation's been constructed by an alien. And the way he eventually discovers it is by going into the lady's bathroom, because he's never been there.
0: <gasps> that's <laughs> so, that's And then he just
1: finds, effectively, a, a, a brick wall. <gasps> uh, so um yes that's that's how he eventually uncovers
0: that is super cool yeah it's quite good love it well that, that was kind of it
1: yeah should we <laughs> do the references
0: let's do the references
1: and now the references
0: okay as ever i'm just gonna mention the main one and then there will be a more complete list on our website
1: Wondercover.com.
0: teamwork Okay, main argument, Bostrom. Uh, I'm going to repeat the title of the paper, which is, Are We Living in a Computer Simulation? It was published on the Philosophical Quarterly in 2003. I'm going to put also references to papers that respond to these arguments so you can see the details of the debate if you're interested. If you're interested in the science, there's that panel I was talking about, which is on YouTube. Uh, you can find a video of the of the whole debate, which took place in 2016. It was uh, an event honoring Isaac Asimov. The debate is moderated by Neil deGrasse Tyson. It features a lot of people that we have either mentioned or whose ideas we have mentioned today. They're mostly physicists. There's so David Chalmers is there who uh, who is um, a philosopher of mind, he's special in philosophy of mind. He's amazing. He could have said so many things about all the implications in terms of philosophy of mind. Says nothing. <laughs> At some point, he makes some weird comment about Asimov as a writer. I think he wasn't really prepared for that level of debate.
1: I think he might have sent his uh, phenomenological zombie version of himself along. <laughs> Because it can not be bothered to go.
0: <laughs> I think that's pretty much what it looks like. <laughs> um, but it is, so it's a two hour long debate amongst physicists, but it's incredibly compelling. Like I would say that I watched it so you don't have to, but I think you should. It's kind of good. And it's quite refreshing because you see all these physicists also discussing things that they don't know, which is a sight to behold. Because mm-hmm. it doesn't happen very often, right? And they're very clear about um, about the science, and there's a bit of uh, of banter between um, philosopher and scientists. So, it's yeah, it's got the drama, it's got the laughs, it's got everything. Rizwan Burke's book is called The Simulation Hypothesis. I have not read it. I have based the bit um, in the podcast on his theory on an interview with him. So it's him explaining the book. So it's it's a good source, but I don't know if the book is good. But it's so, there. It's there and it, it just came out. It's literally a book. It's literally a book that just came out. So we're riding the waves of current affairs here. Mm. Right.
1: In June 2019.
0: Yes, because this is a podcast and it will remain on the waves forever the the bit about information realism well the information realism is a concept that is used and talked about by various people but there's this book by max stegmark who is a swedish physicist who is also in that panel and he's amazing and wears a leather jacket which i think <laughs> is hilarious um but he's 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 great he's he's amazing so this book is called Our Mathematical Universe, and in in it he explains a lot of just mainstream physics and alternative theories to how the universe works in very understandable terms, and and it's very entertaining as well. But also at the end he kind of cheekily takes on his own idea of uh, how the universe is built, and that is information. And so it's a good explanation of how the argument would work. And I do recommend it because I have read it and I have it at home. But you can't borrow it. So, yeah, and and there's there's more, but there will be more on the website.
1: Farscape is available on DVD (laughs) and Blu-ray from all good entertainment retailers. It's very good but i would, it's not generally relevant. Okay, so <laughs> thanks so much for listening. As as we said wondercover.com for all the references and also to see our previous episodes. We talked about flat earth. There's a great one about Galileo uh, and he was a very interesting man far more interesting than you think.
0: Yeah, there's there's one about realism and anti-realism actually, so it also kind of plugs into the whole information realism thing. mm
1: mm-hmm. Mhm and And that's called "Why does Science work?" yeah, that episode
0: which may sound counterintuitive mm. but mm.
1: we also did a great episode about lab coats why why do we why do we wear them? why do they exist? So that's all on the website, and you can listen to it all there. yeah, if you liked this, please do subscribe in your app or wherever you're listening to this. uh maybe you're listening to it over a neighbor's fence in which case you're going to have to do a little bit more work. (laughs) Subscribe to it. It really helps us get the word out. It helps us make more. And also, if you enjoyed it, please do leave us a review on iTunes. That is also a huge thing for us, and it it helps us be heard by more people. And that's it.
0: So, what have we learned today?
1: Today we've learned that we might be living in a video game, so just in case, you better practice at work. (laughs) under cupboard